Good evening, fellow pilgrims, and welcome to Screwtape class for tonight. Wondering if anyone will recognize what this song is, and I'm going to be quiet and let you listen for a minute and see if you can figure out why it's connected to tonight. turn that off because that is one of the most encouraging things that we could listen to right now that of course is the old uh, spiritual maybe not as old as you might think uh, that was written in the early 20th century and became a big hit for Ethel Waters and Mahalia Jackson and it is from Jesus's text um, in the Sermon on the Mount that God's eye is on the sparrow and he cares for us as individuals, something that we're going to talk about uh, tonight in class. So uh, as we get ready to begin uh, this class where we'll finish up, Screwtape proposes a toast. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the great gift of your love for us, and we thank you for the great gift of the Screwtape letters and Screwtape proposes a toast. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into all wisdom as we look at your word and that you would use this to help draw us more and more into the things of your kingdom. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight uh, we are going to finish up Screwtape Proposes a Toast and we're going to see that there once again are some very important lessons uh, about habits that will enable us to live Christianly, uh, particularly in these very strange days uh, that we are inhabiting right now. But as we begin, I would encourage you to say with me this verse from Ephesians uh, that is our theme verse for this class uh, that helps us to keep the right perspective on this battle in which we find ourselves. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we've said before, this is such an important verse because it reminds us that we are in a battle, which leads me to the reasons that we are studying this book that I want to keep in front of us because 
understanding why we're looking at this book helps us to have a framework for um, hanging the knowledge that we get through looking at Lewis's work and the scriptures related to it. So firstly, we are studying this for lessons on understanding the battle in which we find ourselves. Our culture tells us that we're not in a battle, that everything's good, that there's nothing that's evil, uh, and that we really need to just move on with the program. But the scriptures tell a different story, and Jesus told a different story, that there is a battle going on between the forces of God and the forces of Satan, and that we do have an enemy who is active and wants to take us out. Secondly, we're looking at lessons on how to think Christianly and how to develop a Christian worldview. Developing that framework of understanding our lives and reality that will enable us to see clearly about what Jesus calls us to do as we follow him. Thirdly, we're looking at lessons on the psychology of temptation. This book is full of those, and it's like reading the playbook from the other side. It gives us uh, good information about what to be on the lookout for. And lastly, uh, we want to be looking for habits to cultivate that will enable us to lead a boldly Christian life. So much of our lives are made up of habits and we're usually unaware of them. But the more that we intentionally pursue habits that lead us toward life and godliness, the more we will be able to live boldly for Christ. So uh, to go back over uh, the first couple of sessions from Screwtape Proposes a Toast, uh, we're going to rehearse those habits. But before that, uh, I want to just say a word about this particular piece. Uh, as we've said before, this was written in 1959, um, about 20 years after the original Screwtape letters. And Lewis is responding to a lot of the trends that he sees going on in the culture. Um, those trends which now, 40 years after he wrote this, are becoming the reality that defines what is going on in our world. So for that reason, I think that this work is very important. However, one of the things about this work is it's a little more difficult than the screw tape letters themselves. It's denser, uh, it has more abstract thought, uh, it has a lot of different aspects that are not in the screw tape letters. So if you're feeling a little overwhelmed by it, don't feel badly. If you don't feel like you quite get it the first time around, don't feel badly. Uh, but what I would encourage you to do is to chew on this material, to go back after listening to class and work through the PowerPoint and meditate on the scriptures and look at the wisdom out of the scriptures that Lewis is pulling into this screw tape proposes a toast because it will richly reward your study and it will give you a framework to make sense of some of what's going on around us right now. So with that, habits from the first part of screw tape proposes a toast. First, beware of cultural mere routine that numbs you to kingdom life. This is the idea that Satan loves to just get us all about what everyone else is doing and absorbing without even thinking about it the priorities and fashions of the world. And those things that become the daily routine of our lives can then define who we are. And the result of that is it moves us away from God's kingdom into the kingdom of this world. Secondly, daily seek transformation and flee conformity to the social environment. Most of us think that we're not really being pressured, that we are free agents, but we neglect to realize how important the forces are that surround us uh, that would try to lead us away from the kingdom of God. It's like gravity. We don't see it, but it affects every aspect of our lives. And that's why each day it is important to renew our commitment to Christ, to seek transformation from the Holy Spirit, and to be aware of those areas where we are being pressured to conform to a social mold that is not what Jesus calls us to. Thirdly, practice regular reflection on the direction and fervor of your spiritual life. If you're like me, I'm not always very good at reflecting or making time for reflection a priority. It seems like there are so many other things to do, even during this pandemic. But reflection is really important. 
And you'll notice throughout the scriptures that reflection is commended. And then we see Jesus himself regularly going away, taking time to be alone with his father. And we need to do that as well, not just to pray and meditate on scripture, but also to look at what God might be doing in our lives. And if we don't stop and reflect, we can be like that old uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, slip sliding away. We can be gradually moving away from our faith without even knowing it. And I would commend to you again uh, that handout uh, from two classes ago that's a little list of questions to help you do spiritual reflection. Fourthly, aspire to be greatly used by God. And again, this doesn't mean aspire to be famous. Uh, somehow in our culture today, we hear great and we automatically think famous. But many of the saints of God were not famous in their own day. But they made an enormous difference by their radical obedience to God. It might have been obedience that was noticed and made them famous, or it might have been obedience that no one ever noticed, but where God used them and their abandonment to his will to make a difference in the world. And my friends, we need to ask God to use us. Our faith is not just about making us happy and content uh, to stay put in our own houses. God desires to use us as agents for his kingdom, and we need to be on the lookout for where that calling lies for each one of us. Fifthly, avoid celebrity worship and uncritical acceptance of celebrity ideas. This is something that is rife around the world right now. And Lewis saw it uh, before it had ever really become a big thing. He saw it uh, in the uh, 1950s where rock and roll and uh, all of that uh, was starting to take root there after coming across the Atlantic. And he saw the power that these people who were famous singers and entertainers had over their fans. And we are prone uh, to fall into that, even as Christians, and to uncritically accept whatever people that we think are cool uh, or talented do. Um, this is true of sports figures, uh, musical figures, uh, Instagram influencers, whatever it might be. But as Christians, we are to resist that. The one we are to imitate and be influenced by is Jesus himself. And then habits from last week, uh, which was probably the deepest and uh, perhaps most confusing part of this toast. Uh, but I hope if you focus on the habits, that will help you uh, to be able to make sense and apply some of what Lewis is talking about here because it's really important. So the first habit from last week, live with compassion and biblical behavior toward others, using liberty for the cultivation of virtue rather than vice. And this is so important. Christians are called to live with compassion and biblical behavior toward others. We are not called to use the methods of the world to get angry and revengeful against people that we think are doing things that are wrong or that disagree with us. We are called to love, to love our enemies, and we are to use our liberty as a means for the cultivation of virtue rather than vice. And the problem for so many of us, uh, myself included, is that our liberty, our freedom to do what we like, often means that we use and squander that freedom for our own comfort and amusement. Uh, we've talked about uh, that uh, phrase, amusing ourselves to death from the book, Whatever Happened to Sin, and part of the idea of that book is that if you can get all the Christians to just be focused on being entertained all the time, Satan doesn't really need to do anything else because we've gotten out of the battle. So we need to make sure that our liberty is a call to the cultivation of virtue and following Jesus. Secondly, reject a merely cultural view of equality 
and cultivate and practice a biblical view of equality. This is something that's so important and it actually is kind of confusing because where there's so many messages about equality in our culture and we know that equality is a biblical concept and so it's easy to get sucked into some of the world's definitions of this. But what I want us to do is to think biblically about this, to think Christianly. And scripture does have a lot to say about equality. And it's important. Uh, scripture tells us that every person, every man, every woman is created in the image of God. We are all image bearers. He also tells us, scripture tells us that we are all fallen. We are all marred by sin, but we are still image bearers. Scripture tells us that we are all given gifts by God. Scripture tells us that we are all given those gifts to use for the kingdom of God. And scripture tells us that we are all given talents. So there's equality in all of those things, but there are many ways that people are not equal. Men are not the same as women. There are some people who are tall and some people who are short. There are some people who are really gifted athletes and there are others who are not. There are people who are brilliant writers and public speakers and others who are scared to death to give a speech. Uh, regularly, American polls show that people's fear of speaking in public for many people is even higher than their fear of death. So there are lots and lots and lots of ways that people are different. So what you might say is that scripture tells us that there is, is an equality of creation and an equality of opportunity, but there is not an equality of status or an equality of result. There are differences among people, and some of those are good differences, God-given differences. Some of them are differences that are imposed by culture that may or may not be good. But the idea that everyone is equal and exactly the same is just not true. And the problem that we run into our culture is that we get confused sometimes as Christians um, by all of these demands for rights. Uh, and as we saw in the portion that we looked at last week, rights are not the things that Christians are to stand on. We are to be giving up our rights um, to understand that all that we have is a gift. Um, there are no things that we can claim really as rights uh, that God made us and Jesus redeemed us while we were yet sinners and our worth and our value come from God's creating us and from Jesus's redeeming us, not because of anything we're owed by culture or by anyone else. Thirdly, we are to reject envy as one of the most pernicious sins. Envy is something that causes us to compare ourselves with others or to look at someone else um, and it militates against the biblical virtue of contentment. That old proverb, the grass is always greener on the other side, is so true of us. We can be perfectly content, and then we see someone that has something that we don't have, and all of a sudden envy flares, and envy can lead to all sorts of other sins. Fourthly, seek to develop biblical virtues in the fruit of the Spirit, even when culture disdains them. Biblical virtues are ones that Jesus commends, that we see scripture telling us are things that we want to have in our lives that should characterize us. But in our culture, we are often told that these things are not good. Humility may not be good because you need to have pride. Uh, and you know, so many of these things are slippery slope where a little bit of it sounds good, but then when you start embracing it, you realize that you've gotten far away from what the scriptures teach. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are the things that are important and that should characterize us. They may not seem bold or powerful in the eyes of the world, but they are bold from a gospel perspective. Love, loving your enemies 
is the most powerful thing that you can do to try to overcome injustice. Fifthly, pursue excellence in every endeavor. Christians are enjoined to pursue excellence, and that's going to come up again in the portion we'll look at tonight. So I'll talk more about that later. And then sixthly, pray for gifted unbelievers that they would repent and become agents of God's grace. And the letter, uh, the toast, talks about this, that people who have been great sinners, if they come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, have the capacity to be great saints as well. They understand the dark side, if you will, and they are that much more motivated to uh, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of truth and light. But for so many of us, we may remember to pray for people in our own circle who don't know Jesus, but we don't pray boldly for people uh, to come to the Lord. And it has been remarkable in the past several decades how many people who were pronounced atheist or um, people who were living the glamorous celebrity lifestyle full of debauchery, Jesus has reached into their lives and turned them around and made them potent ambassadors for the kingdom of God. So let us pray boldly for these people so that they will come to Jesus and be used by him, just like the Apostle Paul, perhaps the least likely convert in the history of the world, but one who God used to turn the world upside down for Jesus. So that brings us to tonight's portion of the toast. Um, I would encourage you, if you've got a book with the toast in it or you've got the printout, to get that out, uh, to be ready with a highlighter or a pen, and uh, we're going to plunge right in. So here we go. My own experience, as I have said, was mainly on the English sector, and I still get more news from it than from any other. It may be said that what I am now going to say will not apply so fully to the sectors in which some of you may be operating, but you can make the necessary adjustments when you get there. Some application it will almost certainly have. If it has too little, you must labor to make the country you are dealing with more like what England already is. In that promising land, the spirit of I'm as good as you has already begun something more than a generally social influence. It begins to work itself into their educational system. How far its operations there have gone at the present moment, I should not like to say with certainty, nor does it matter. Once you've grasped the tendency you can easily predict his future developments, especially as we ourselves will play our part in the developing. The basic principle of the new education is to be that dunces and idlers must not be made to feel inferior to intelligent and industrious pupils. That would be undemocratic. These differences between pupils, for they are obviously and nakedly individual differences, must be disguised. This can be done at various levels. At universities, examinations must be framed so that nearly all the students get good marks. Entrance examinations must be framed so that all or nearly all citizens can go to universities, whether they have any power or wish to profit by higher education or not. At schools, the children who are too stupid or lazy to learn languages and mathematics and elementary science can be set to doing things that children used to do in their spare time. Let them, for example, make mud pies and call it modeling. But all the time there must be no faintest hint that they are inferior in any way to the children who are at work. Whatever nonsense they are engaged in must have, I believe the English already use the phrase, parity of esteem. An even more drastic scheme is not possible. Children who are fit to proceed to higher class may be artificially kept back because the others would get a trauma. Beelzebub, what a useful word. 
by being left behind. The bright pupil thus remains democratically fettered to his own age group throughout his school career, and a boy who would be capable of tackling Aeschylus or Dante sits listening to his co-evil's attempts to spell out a cat sat on a mat. In a word, we may reasonably hope for the virtual abolition of education when I'm as good as you has fully had its way. All incentives to learn and all penalties for not learning will be prevented. Who are they to overtop their fellows? And anyway, the teachers, or should I say nurses, will be far too busy reassuring the dunces and patting them on the back to waste any time on real teaching. We shall no longer have to plan and toil to spread imperturbable conceit and incurable ignorance among men. The little vermin themselves will do it for us. Of course, this would not follow unless all education became state education, but it will. That is the part of the same movement. Penal taxes designed for that purpose are liquidating the middle class, the class who were prepared to save and spend and make sacrifices in order to have their children privately educated. The removal of this class, besides linking up with the abolition of education, is fortunately an inevitable effect of the spirit that says, I'm as good as you. This was, after all, the social group which gave to the humans the overwhelming majority of their scientists, physicians, philosophers, theologians, poets, artists, composers, architects, jurists, and administrators. If ever there were a bunch of stalks that needed their tops knocked off, it was surely they. As an English politician remarked not long ago, a democracy does not want great men. It would be idle to ask of such a creature whether by want it meant need or like. But you had better be clear, for here Aristotle's question comes up again. We in hell would welcome the disappearance of democracy in the strict sense of the word, the political arrangement so-called. Like all forms of government, it often works to our advantage, but on the whole, less often than the other forms. And what we must realize is that democracy in the diabolical sense, I'm as good as you, being like folks, togetherness, is the fittest instrument we could possibly have for extirpating political democracies from the face of the earth. For democracy or the democratic spirit in the diabolical sense leads to a nation without great men a nation mainly of subliterates, full of the cocksureness which flattery breeds on ignorance, and quick to snarl or to whimper at the first sign of criticism. And that is what hell wishes every democratic people to be. For when such a nation meets in conflict, a nation where children have been made to work at school, where talent is placed in high posts, and where the ignorant mass are allowed no say at all in public affairs, only one result is possible. The democracies were surprised lately when they found that Russia had got ahead of them in science. What a delicious specimen of human blindness. If the whole tendency of their society is opposed to every sort of excellence, why did they expect their scientists to excel? It is, our it is our function to encourage the behavior, the manners, the whole attitude of mind, which democracies naturally like and enjoy, because these are the very things which, if unchecked, will destroy democracy. You would almost wonder that even humans don't see it themselves, even if they don't read Aristotle. That would be undemocratic. You would have thought that the French Revolution would have taught them that the behavior aristocrats naturally like is not the behavior that preserves an aristocracy. They might then have applied the same principle to all forms of government. But I would not end on that note. 
I would not hell forbid, encourage in your own minds that delusion which you must carefully foster in the minds of your human victims. I mean the delusion that the fate of nations is in itself more important than that of individual souls. The overthrow of free peoples and the multiplication of slave states are for us a means, besides, of course, being fun. But the real end is the destruction of individuals. For only individuals can be saved or damned, can be sons of the enemy or food for us. The ultimate value for us of any revolution, war, or famine lies in the individual anguish, treachery, hatred, rage, and despair which it may produce. I'm as good as you is a useful means for the destruction of democratic societies, but it has a far deeper value as an end in itself, as a state of mind, which necessarily excluding humility, charity, contentment, and all the pleasures of gratitude or admiration turns a human being away from almost every road which might finally lead him to heaven. But now for the pleasantest part of my duty. It falls to my lot to propose on behalf of the guests the health of Principal Slubgob and the Tempter's Training College. Fill your glasses. What is this I see? What is this delicious bouquet I inhale? Can it be? Mr. Principal, I unsay all my hard words about the dinner. I see and smell that even under wartime conditions, the college cellar still has a few dozen of sound old vintage. Well, 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 this is like the old times. Hold it beneath your noses for a moment, gentle devils. Hold it up to the light. Look at those fiery streaks that writhe and tangle in its dark heart as if they were contending. And so they are. You know how this wine is blended? Different types of Pharisee have been harvested, trodden, and fermented together to produce its subtle flavor. Types that were most antagonistic to one another on earth. Some were all rules and relics and rosaries. Others were all drab clothes, long faces, and petty traditional abstinences from wine or cards or the theater. Both had in common their self-righteousness and an almost infinite distance between their actual outlook and anything the enemy really is or commands. The wickedness of other religions was the really live doctrine and the religion of each. Slander was its gospel and denigration its litany. How they hated each other up where the sun shone. How much more they hate each other now that they are now forever conjoined, but not reconciled. Their astonishment, their resentment at the combination, the festering of their eternally impenitent spite, passing into our spiritual digestion, will work like fire. Dark fire. All said and done, my friends, it will be an ill day for us if what, must, what most humans mean by religion ever vanishes from the earth. It can still send us the truly delicious sins. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the altar. Your eminence, your disgraces, my thorns, shadies, and gentle devils, I give you the toast of Principal Slubgob and the college. Well, that's the end of the toast, and there are some great lessons in this uh, concluding part of what Lewis has to share with us. So we're going to jump right into the habits uh, from this concluding section. The first habit, embrace a biblical understanding of gifts and talents that recognizes the needfulness of differences. Differences are a beautiful thing. When you look at the spectacular creation that God has made and look at the variety of flowers and birds and trees 
in everything in creation, it should be no surprise that there's a huge variety in the human race of so many different capabilities and gifts, of so many different appearances, um, all of the different colors and cultures and all of that. And the funny thing is that in an age where supposedly we are celebrating diversity, we are being pushed more and more and more into a uniformity that is exactly what Lewis is talking about when he says this dangerous principle of I'm as good as you. Scripture tells us that we all have gifts, but they're different gifts, and what a terrible world it would be if we all have the same gift and that we have different talents as well. Listen to these words. Uh, this is from Romans 12, again, that great chapter, and then following that will be 1 Corinthians 12. And I would really encourage you to read both of these because they really get at this biblical idea of equality, that it's an equality of opportunity. We're all given gifts, uh, but we all are given different gifts. And we are not to envy each other's gifts or differences, but we're to be what we've been made to be, to bloom where we've been planted. So Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is a passage which is so important today because it gets at the heart of this. It says if our gift is in service, then we should serve. It doesn't say if our gift is in service, we should go sit in the corner and pout because we wanted to have the gift of teaching. And so we're not going to do anything until somebody says, yes, you're a really good teacher and you have the right to do that as to get that out and do that. That's the problem that we see in our culture today, not living into God's design for us. So from 1 Corinthians 12, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And this goes on and it talks about that no part can say to another, I don't need you. And this is part of the problem. This is one place where the church needs to get on board with some of what's going on in the culture, and that is respect. Um, there needs to be respect for everyone, despite these differences. There's not a hierarchy saying some people are better than others because they have different gifts. This is the tricky part where we have to distinguish. And what we see in scripture is that there's to be equal respect even for the unmentionable, unpresentable parts of the body as for the most presentable ones. It reminds me of there was a beautiful passage um, from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he talks about working heartily as unto the Lord that we'll get to in a little bit. But he said, you know, if your job is a street sweeper, don't sit there and bemoan the fact that you don't have something that's more exciting or glamorous to do. Instead, embrace that calling to the very best of your ability, sleep, sweep the streets like you were Michelangelo painting a painting. And that is one of the things that we need to find again in our culture. And we also need to respect all of the differences that there are out there and realize that that is what makes such a beautiful world. When all of us are working together and using our gifts, acknowledging our differences and being grateful that we're not all the same, then we live in that rich tapestry that God has created. 
The second habit, foster biblical self-esteem that is not based on status or accomplishments, but which is rooted in your identity as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Part of the problem today is that there's this huge self-esteem movement which encourages narcissism, which basically says you deserve to be praised just for being alive. And the problem with that is that that is not biblical self-esteem. Biblical self-esteem springs from the fact that we were created in the image of God and that Christ shed his blood on the cross for us. It is not rooted in our accomplishments. It is not to be found by comparing ourselves to others and either finding that we think we're better than other people and have good self-esteem as a result, or that we find ourselves lacking in some way and have poor self-esteem. All of that is utterly irrelevant. The most important thing is understanding that our value comes from God himself. Listen to these words. Uh, this is from the Apostle Paul. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And these words from Philippians show us that Paul, who had it made in the eyes of the world, being a citizen of Rome, the highest rank in that culture, being at the top of the heap in the Jewish world, he counted all of that as a loss. All those things that probably a lot of people envied, he cast all of that aside because said none of that matters compared to knowing Jesus and being known by him. And then that beautiful passage at the end of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So very important. And one of the things that is, uh, you know, so incredible about God's love for us is that there is that whole portion out of the Gospel of Luke uh, where Jesus talks about the hairs of our head are numbered and that his eye is on the sparrow. We are worth more than many sparrows. And as that beautiful song that we opened with tonight says, there is joy in that. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he cares for me. My friends, we have to recover this biblical understanding of self-esteem and realize it's not based on our accomplishments or our looks or our age or our athletic ability or who we know or what we do or any of those things, but it is based in the fact that Jesus loves us and calls us to follow him. The third habit, encourage and pray for biblical leaders and in your own sphere of influence, mentor and model biblical leadership. My friends, we are enjoined in many places more than we have time to count tonight to pray for our leaders. And we need to pray for Christian leaders, in particular people we know who own the name of Jesus Christ, um, and pray that God would use them and protect them because Satan does not want Christian leaders out there. And uh, the unfortunate thing in democracy is, as many pundits have said, uh, you will get the leaders that you deserve, uh, which is sort of like the uh, places in scripture, especially Romans 1, where it says God gave them up. That's a frightening thing to think about. But listen to these words from scripture. This is from Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And this is talking mostly about spiritual leaders, bishops, clergy, overseers, deacons, mentors, teachers, all of that. But it all equally applies to Christians who are leaders in the secular world. We need to pray for all our leaders, both Christian and not. Um, but we particularly need to pray for clergy, because if we lose the word of God, which so much of the church has done, um, we are in a very desperate place. The word of God is the only truth that there is in this world, and the spirit-empowered proclamation of the word of God is the most important thing that Christian leaders can do, and we need to pray for all of our clergy and Christian leaders and lay leaders that they would rightly proclaim this word of truth. And then from uh, Peter's words here in 1 Peter 5, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then from 2 Timothy 2, 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. My friends, all of this is so important. We need to pray for our leaders. And then all of us, whether we consider ourselves leaders or not, if we know Jesus, we need to obey what scripture says about imitating the example of those who are godly in our midst. We who are older need to be pouring into those who are younger. We need to be entrusting to them the word of truth to people who are faithful, who are younger. And Titus is great about this as well for women, um, but it's women and men, and we are to be mentoring the next generation. The gospel doesn't pass through osmosis. We've got to be intentional about this. We've got to be disciple makers. We've got to be modeling uh, what it means to follow Christ and investing ourselves, breaking out of our comfort zones, having intergenerational mentoring relationships to pass on the word of the Lord and what it means to follow Jesus. Fourthly, reject mediocrity and pursue excellence. This is so important. We talked about this last week, but what Satan wants to do is to get rid of excellence, especially Christian excellence, because if there's excellence being done by Christians, people would be drawn to that. And just as the verse says that we say in church so often, that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. When people see excellence, even the culture sometimes is drawn to it and will turn and praise God for it, be led to God by the excellence of believers. So Satan wants us at all costs to have mediocrity, mediocrity in our work, mediocrity in our relationships, mediocrity in our worship, mediocrity in the arts, all of these things, because when we do that, the true, the good, the beautiful, all those things disappear. So it's no, excellent, no, no accident that in that same verse in Philippians where we are enjoined to think about what is pure and beautiful, we are also enjoined to think about what is excellent. Listen to this from 2 Timothy. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul is trying to encourage Timothy, who is timid, to live into the gift that God has given him, to boldly go out and use that gift, to be excellent, not to be mediocre. And then that verse um, from Colossians that we've talked about before, 
whatever you do, work heartily, that is, work with all your heart, as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, every task, whether it's cleaning your bathroom, whether it is speaking to a thousand people, whether it is sweeping that street, uh, whatever it might be, do it as if you were working for Jesus, because that will make all the difference. And then that passage from Revelation, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, but neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This mediocrity, this tepid faith is something that Satan loves, but which is not what we're called to in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come to the disciples and say, follow me on the days that you feel like it. He said, follow me, and he led them where he wanted them to go. May we have the grace to do the same. And then fifthly, embrace humility, charity, contentment, gratitude, and appreciation to help stave off pride and an insistence on your own rights. I think Lewis gets this so right in this toast. He says that one of the things that Satan loves is for us to be so concerned about our rights and the things that we are owed by others and by culture that we become proud and we expect others to serve us and to say, yes, here's what you want, here you have it. But the problem with that is that scripture tells us that as Christians, we are to be about self-emptying, that our eyes are not to be focused on ourselves, but they are to be focused on the Lord and then focused on other people and how we can love and serve them. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus didn't come to put people into slavery to meet his needs. Jesus came emptying himself of all of his privileges and all of his wealth and power and came among us in humility as one who serves. As Mark 10 says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My friends, where is your life being a ransom for someone else, setting someone else free? We are not to be about getting ourselves served. Whenever your focus, when you feel the attitude of your heart being about, I want this because I want what I want when I want it, that is a good sign that pride is getting a hold and that Satan, Wormwood, and Screwtape are uh, trying to get their clutches into you. But listen to what the Word of God says, first in First Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee, run the other direction. Pursue, run after. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then Colossians 3. Put on then, put on like clothes in the morning. It's not what you may naturally feel, but put it on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. My friends, the world needs the church to rise up and be this right now. We need righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, compassion, humility, meekness. All of this is in such short supply where there's just lots of people screaming at each other for their rights. We need to be that voice of love in the midst of all of this. And then last but not least, keep foremost in your life the understanding that salvation of individual people created in the image of God matters infinitely more to God than the fate of any political system or nation. We've touched on this before um, in the letters where Screwtape is saying, try to get your patient all involved in a cause or in politics or with a particular leader or uh, 
party and politics, because if you can get them all consumed with that, they will totally lose their focus on sharing the gospel. And we see this in Jesus's own life and priorities, that Jesus, although he lived in the midst of this oppressive regime, he did not focus on overthrowing the Roman government or even the oppression of the Jewish system. He focused on bringing the kingdom of God, of bringing salvation, forgiveness, and repentance uh, to individual people. And the scriptures back this up, and it's so important for us to keep this in mind, because when we begin to believe that our country is more important than the souls of individuals, we have gotten off base. And we are called to love our country, to pray for our leaders, to be glad for our country, but we must never get into the position of thinking that God cares more about our country than he does about individuals. And we need to put uh, our energies not only into being good citizens, but even more importantly, being good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which means sharing our faith, loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Listen to these words from that great 40th chapter of Isaiah. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And then from Luke 12. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. There's that verse again. You as an individual and every soul is of infinite value to Christ. And then that very familiar verse from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. My friends, Jesus died on the cross, not for nations in the abstract, but for real individual people, for souls, for you, for me, for our families, for those we work with, for those we don't know on the other side of the world. Jesus shed his blood for them, and we must be about loving them and seeking to follow Jesus. So that brings us in to the end of the habits for tonight. Uh, there's a lot to chew on here. I commend uh, reading and rereading and going back and looking with the PowerPoint um, and listening to that beautiful rendition of His Eyes on the Sparrow. It's sung by a children's choir in Mississippi, um, and it is beautiful and a great encouragement if you are feeling discouraged in these times. Let's close with the little excerpt from Scritype letter, letter 8 about uh, obedience and how very important it is. Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, than when a patient, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that you didn't come just to give us truth about political systems or righteousness or uh, the ways of the world, but that you came to love us, to love us as individuals, to love each soul, to love each person created in the image of God, to try to bring them all within the reach of your saving embrace, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, help us to understand your love. 
Lord, help us to understand the biblical principles of equality. And Lord, help us not to be seduced by pride and the grass is greener on the other side and the sin of envy so that we become discontent and grumbly people. Lord, help your light to shine through us that people may see us, they may see the good works that you do through us and that you might be glorified. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Next week, we will do a wrap-up on the Screwtape Letters. I look forward to seeing you then. God bless you.